Welcome to the ACOFP DO.FM Practice Management Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Welcome to the ACOFP DO.FM Practice Management Edition Podcast. This is Rod Pedowitz, DO, FACOFP, your Practice Management Chair. Today, we are bringing you a podcast based on a recorded session from the 2021 Annual Convention on Value-Based Care, where we had the opportunity to talk about the various models that are implemented. Good afternoon and welcome to the seminar on value-based care, patient-centric approach as part of the Annual Convention Scientific Seminar of the SOFP 58th Annual Meeting. We're going to go over the learning objectives, which include appreciation for the integration of value-based care with patient-centric care, understanding the association of value versus volume in care, practice analytics, and modes of remuneration, and considering the benefits that accrue to the patient and the physician when decreased utilization is linked to improve quality and efficiency of care. First, we're going to review what has been viewed traditionally as a problem in the healthcare system in the United States. And this is a relatively older slide, but unfortunately still appropriate, that indicates that at least a third of healthcare expenditures which used to be 750 billion, but it's much more now, don't improve health. And this is in comparison to what in other industries are uh, viewed as a necessity to improve quality, identify inefficiencies and remove waste. Why do we care that patients receive accountable and chronic care appropriately? So the areas of primary concern are in order to satisfy both patient-generated concerns and our professional desire to provide quality care. In addition, in order to program processes that satisfy the quadruple aim of the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, which is population-based but patient-centric, that provide professional satisfaction and decreases costs appropriately in order to increase the economic health of our practices, obviously. So in general, the triple quadruple aim of healthcare um, does include, as I mentioned before, experience of care, health of populations, and reducing costs, but it also requires improving the work life of healthcare providers, including clinicians and staff. In terms of the quadruple aim, outcomes, patient experience, costs, and as, as I just mentioned, provider experience should then translate into equity of healthcare, societal opportunity, decision-making, and structural fairness. In this slide, we see the quality equation, which also relates to value generated originally by the Virginia Mason Health System over a decade ago already in which quality equals the appropriateness times the outcomes plus service divided by cost. So that means 
appropriateness, outcomes and service are directly related and the cost is indirectly related to the value, which depends on the degree of improvement in the quality in each of these areas. Appropriateness has to do with the right patient, the right test, the right procedure, at the right time for the right reason, every time. The outcomes have to do with evidence-based disseminated guidelines and measure outcomes. The service has to do with doing the right thing because it is the right thing to do. It requires engagement, asking and listening, educating, problem solving, verifying and inviting back. The cost has to do with being cost-effective, reducing waste, avoiding misuse, overuse and underuse. An example of a robust value-based program is based on the idea that family medicine is in the sweet spot of all high value areas for value-based care. So what do we prioritize? Wellness visits, care coordination, chronic disease management, transition management, group visits, telehealth as we have seen during the pandemic, integrating behavioral health, integrating community resources, utilizing emergency department avoidance techniques. So family physicians as complex patient care management coaches, reducing unjustified variability against best practices and applying initiatives like the choosing wisely, which for example, means not obtaining screening exercise CCG testing in individuals who are asymptomatic and at low risk for coronary heart disease. It also means, for instance, don't obtain imaging studies in patients with non-specific low back pain. However, as I had mentioned before, the equity in healthcare, it turns out that utilizing value care based and specifically patient-centric, which as opposed to patient-centered, which is what we view, Patient-centric has to do with the perception of the patients about their own health. Medicare Advantage plans have been able to demonstrate that everyone, because Medicare covers everybody, age 65 and above, and disabled individuals, have the opportunity to receive the same type of health care, justified, appropriate, and necessary, and what the patients they respond with is an extremely high degree of satisfaction. On the other hand, what we have experienced during this terrible pandemic that has affected the entire world is that it was deemed that maybe that was an opportunity for the value-based care to have taken more hold. And even though, as you peruse through this slide, you might see that most providers in the country do participate paid to some degree in value-based care, whether they realize it as such or not. There's still a delay, and in some instances, it is still expected to take years before there is more value-based care provided. So comparing what used to be viewed as potentially a third of healthcare as being wasted, uh, this recent article, um, at the end of 2020, in fact, trying to tally uh, the areas in which there is waste in the healthcare system in the United States, 
it was determined by the actual amounts that excessive prices came first, fraud and abuse is still prevalent, clinical efficiency still exists. There is obviously administrative waste, but misprevention may turn out to be a bigger issue because of the pandemic. And there may still be some concern over overuse. And during the pandemic, actually underuse as well. There was a recent report by a group of physicians, and this slide summarizes uh, their concern over what they experienced to be limitations on a fee-for-service-based world in trying to provide the correct, appropriate care that they felt they wanted to provide for the patients. And unfortunately, what they saw was that it was easier to provide care that was no longer appropriate, care that the patient didn't want any longer given their change of circumstances, as opposed to care that the clinicians felt was the right thing to do. And what they ended up experiencing was that they would have to provide this care not at the time allotted and where there was remuneration, but at the time that was beyond their scheduled time and what they viewed as undertaking a labor of love during evenings after basic clinic sessions. And I'm sure that all of us have experienced this. In order to improve our ability to provide value-based care in all its forms, we need to consider patient-centeredness and in fact being patient-centric which includes improving shared decision-making. Other areas are referral management, chronic disease management, and population health management. If we manage to improve the appreciation for these areas of value-based care, we will experience greater participation and remuneration from ACOs, HMOs, integrated delivery systems and pay for performance delivery systems. We will be in fact better prepared for partial risk assumption and eventually full risk. And I will add at this point that in my experience uh, being involved in the healthcare system in all these aspects from uh, private practice, fee for service to for risk, I have found that the best experience has been um, to begin with being involved in for risk where I could provide for the patients what I felt their needs required and where I was able to address their concerns fully. And I have to be concerned over time restraints or remuneration restraints, but now in palliative medicine, I also realized that like many of you in so many aspects of medicine that as family physicians, especially osteopathic family physicians participate in, that we're able to bring in all these concepts, all these ideas to bear to the care of all of our patients. Next, you will hear from Dr. Gregory as part of our panel discussion. 
Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Paula Gregory, and I work for Physician Partners. It's a accountable uh, care organization for patients over 55. It is a very large um, group of um, multi-specialty practices and um, primary care practices with uh, internal medicine or um, family medicine. Um, patients agree to their checkups every three to five months, and um, we see them um, in effort to keep them out of the emergency room. Uh, we work for their best future health. Uh, it's the Medicare practice that I'm currently transitioning. Um, I'm seeing that the uh, patients have seen multiple providers, and over the time, um, there are physicians that are managing uh, things that we could manage in that practice. Uh, for instance, um, they are seeing a cardiologist, and the cardiologist is managing the blood pressure and the lipids. And that's something that typically uh, we would do, and that would allow the specialists to do what they do best and um, cut down the amount of time that patients are having to travel to different places. Additionally, I'm seeing uh, things like duplication of medication, um, patients that are uh, treated uh, with generics and brand names and don't recognize the difference and come in with this large amount of medicine. So we reconcile the medicine in every single uh, visit. Uh, I think it's an effort to avoid fragmented care. And by our leadership report uh, shows about 30 to 35% lower admissions, admissions in all the practices. There are 150 family medicine practices of varying size of physicians in each one of those. You may have one single physician with an extender, or you may have multiple physicians in that practice, depending on um, the needs of the community. Uh, the patients are capped usually around 350 um, patients per provider, uh, and that includes the nurse practitioners. So it's not huge um, volumes that you see, you get to see your patients and, and know them well. Um, there are multi-specialty practices that are associated with this group, and um, that doesn't mean that we have to refer to those. And usually, if the distance is too far for the patient to travel, or the patient uh, already has established a physician, such as a cardiologist, we try to keep that patient with those physicians. Uh, we do see patients every one to three days in certain circumstances if they have CHL, if they have an exacerbation of um, COPD, if they have diabetes that's poorly controlled and want to get control. Uh, acute problems are seen the same day or the next day, and this is um, solely in an effort to avoid hospital admissions and ER visits. Uh, admissions for needed services such as urinary tract infections are done much the same as a regular practice. We see them uh, and handle them quickly. Uh, if a patient needs an admission to um, the hospital, we work with a hospitalist group. Uh, they text us um, or email us, call us, and we send information over that helps them um, with their um, workup. Uh, and now I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Delillo, who um, is going to talk about her experiences. Thank you. Hi, I'm Linda Delo, and I'm going to give my take on value-based care and a patient-centric approach. approach. 
I'm in Port St. Lucie, Florida, and I am a family physician there. I opened my practice in 1991, right after I finished my training. I have over 30 employees. I'm the only physician. I have three nurse practitioners and one physician assistant, as well as a physical therapist. We are a level three NCQA certified patient center medical home since 2013. And I'm also a member of the Palm Beach Accountable Care Organization, which was number one in cost savings for CMS in 2019. My practice consists mostly of private insurance, Medicare, as well as some managed care plans and some capitated managed care. So I'm going to share today with uh, share with you today some of the strategies that I've learned from the ACO, from the patient center medical home, and from the managed care organizations on value based care. What is it? I don't think I need to go into that. I think Dr. Um, Luna did an excellent job already about value-based care and what it is. So what I'm gonna do is just share my strategies uh, and make some suggestions that will help you provide better value-based care. And number one on my list is the HCC coding, hierarchical coding, uh, ICD-10 coding. Why is this so important? This is how we as physicians communicate with insurance companies how sick our patients are. And obviously, it's much less expensive uh, expected costs for patients that are um, maybe an uncomplicated diabetic patient versus a diabetic patient on insulin with a uh, peripheral vascular disease, retinopathy, nephropathy, coronary artery disease, atherosclerosis of the aorta, et cetera, et cetera. So again, having these codes... Uh, in your chart and then communicated to the insurance companies in a organized manner uh, is extremely important so that we can demonstrate just how sick our patients are so that when we're compared to our peers, they're going to be able to make that comparison, determine who's taking care of our patients or these patients uh, with the least cost and still showing the quality. So the HCC coding is extremely important. Um, a few little tips on that. Uh, first, there are systems and softwares that can help you with this coding. If you're not uh, too good at it or you need help, you need to do that training or utilize some of those software uh, to help you. And then also as you're going and receiving your patient's uh, chart information, when they see a specialist, we make sure that we capture the codes from the specialists that as long as they're accurate. For instance, hypertensive retinopathy came through on the patient with uh, hypertension that went for his eye exam. Or maybe the patient went to the cardiologist and now he has congestive heart failure, which may not have been captured previously. Uh, or peripheral vascular disease when they saw the podiatrist or uh, per, uh, peripheral neuropathy. So whatever you're getting your reports from your referring specialist, take a look at their diagnosis codes. And if they are correct, make sure you add them to your problem list and that you're billing for those as well. So that again, insurance companies realize that this patient is as sick as they are and you have reasons for the costs that are being spent on that patient. Quality improvement programs are also important. Um, Take a look at whatever measures, quality things you wish to measure, such as vaccination rates. Uh, and by measuring, you can get better. Population management, what do we do with those? We make sure that uh, we produce lists every so often of uh, when 
any diabetic patient that may not have been seen in the last six months or people that had come in and their blood pressure was not at goal. But you can figure out these populations and maybe do uh, group video visits or group visits or just get them into the office to be cared for so that they don't get um, lost in and lost to care. Access to care is another key, key thing. Uh, patients need to be able to reach you uh, and it needs to be patient centric. It needs to fit their schedules. And that's why telemedicine has been really beneficial for people that work long hours and maybe can't get to your office during regular business hours. Uh, patient portals for communicating, extended office hours. In our practice, we um, did some experimenting with extended office hours and found that when we started opening our practice earlier, we opened at 7 a.m. When we did that, we started filling those appointments first. Everybody was really happy with that. They could get in either before work or just go to work a little bit late. We tried extended hours in the evening and they didn't go well. We had a lot of people not show up. So we were paying for staff to stay late and then people wouldn't come. They just got busy at work and forgot or whatever. So again, um, access to care that fits the individual patient's needs. Patient surveys can be controversial, but very beneficial. You know, we get in our little worlds and our routines and oftentimes we uh, don't see what's right in front of our eyes and we can, these surveys are very beneficial to see what patients see or what their perceptions are. And even if it's something simple like your magazines in your waiting room are outdated uh, or your staff wasn't friendly or it took me too long to get my appointment or whatever those things are that you may not always know about or hear about, these patient surveys can be very beneficial to help you improve your um, patient care. So what are some strategies that our practice uses to save cost, to improve quality, and of course, improve our bottom line as well? So, and I wanna bring that up. I would say that through the patient-centered medical care, medical home program and the insurance benefits from that, as well as the ACO brought in well over six figures to my practice, which was additional income. So value-based care, uh, does make a difference and you really can improve your revenues by practicing in this way. So um, again, some of these strategies, avoid emergency room visits and hospitalizations. This seems obvious. Everybody knows this is where the big dollars are spent. They're certainly not spent in our offices uh, and we can save the entire system a huge amount of money by keeping patients out of hospitals and emergency rooms and utilizing urgent care when we're not available. Um, how do we do that? We risk stratify our patients. Uh, my most sick patients are the patients that end up in the hospital more frequently. Those are flagged. And as soon as they call my office, it pops up an alert that tells uh, the staff that this is a high risk patient. And they know right away to either get me, get the nurse triage nurse right away, or get that patient in for an appointment that very day right away. Um, this has been very, very helpful as well. And then again, being accessible. Patients can reach us off after hours right away. And then if I can answer that phone, I can determine whether they, it can wait till the morning or, or they need urgent care or they need to be uh, going to the hospital. And again, educating our patients when they come in, if they have utilized the emergency room when they maybe should have or could have used a urgent care, educating them. Usually it only takes once when they get the bill that they realize, oh my gosh, I should have just gone to urgent care rather than the hospital. But again, taking a few minutes to educate patients on these sorts of things can really save a lot of money to our healthcare system. 
transitions of care, uh, hopefully everybody's doing that. That is also generates great revenue, but it's an, a tremendous benefit for our patients and keeping them from going back to the hospitals. How many times have we seen um, duplications of, of medications that they had at home and then they were given another prescription for something similar, two different statins or whatever when they went home. So going over those medication lists and, and making sure that they understand what their treatment regimen is when they get out of the hospital and being there for those patients really does prevent hospital readmissions. And the same thing along the lines with the chronic care management. If you have good rapport with your patients and you're communicating with our sick patients frequently, they're gonna reach out to you and you're gonna determine problems and things before they become serious and they end up in the hospital. Another way that strategy we utilize is advanced directives. I ask about this during my uh, annual wellness visits and I really encourage patients to um, have advanced directives. As uh, many know, the highest cost usually is in the last few days of life in the hospital. And if we can utilize uh, hospice or uh, have advanced directives in place so that patients don't end up with care that they didn't want in the last days of their life. Again, we do a great service uh, to our patients and their families with advanced directives, as well as saving costs dramatically. And also referring to other quality cost conscientious providers that provide good communication. If there's good communication between the primary care and the referring specialist, there's reduction in aggravation and cost of care, uh, no duplication of tests, and again, coordinated care, which puts the patient at the center. So who you refer to is extremely important and then getting those records and communicating uh, between each other what the best is uh, needed for that patient to be cared for. And then quality improvement strategies. Again, we talked a little bit about this measuring and setting goals for improvement. Determine the root causes of those deficiencies. Is it cost? Is it access? Education or other barriers to care? And this is how we improved our vaccine rates. We found out that most of the time patients um, were afraid that they were going to get hit with a big bill. So we now have nurses uh, pre, pre with through get this out yet through pre visit planning. We um, look at vaccinations that are due, and then we have the uh, prior authorization department determine the cost. So when the patient comes in, if they're due for a Gardasil or a Shingrix or other vaccination, we know in advance to be able to tell them, hey, you're due for this vaccine and it's covered 100% by your insurance. Would you like to have it done today? And we have improved our vaccination rates dramatically with that little process in place. Um, having alerts in our system that remind us what vaccines are due and then getting the cost in advance. We need to develop strategies for improvements. Um, we need to utilize the input from our staff that are in the trenches. They see things differently than we do and oftentimes have great ideas to help improve these, uh, improve the deficiencies. Some examples might be appointment reminders, patient alerts, sending messages or uh, voice messages, educating our patients, and of course, those prior authorizations that we all love. And also, we do pre-visit planning, as I mentioned a little bit to close those quality gaps approve and approve efficiency during the office visits. Hello, everyone. 
My name is Dr. Jeremy Fisher. I'm a program director in family medicine at Henry Ford McComb Hospital in Clinton Township, Michigan. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit today about what value-based care and how that applies to the residency setting so that you have an idea of what young physicians are learning as they come out. So when we look at value-based care, what do residents learn about this? Well, the ACGME that now that we have a unified accreditation that everyone follows has a couple of standards regarding this. Um, residents have to be exposed to it. They have to analyze their practice using quality improvement methods. Um, they have to incorporate that and somehow improve their practice based on that. We have to teach residents to incorporate considerations of care, cost awareness, delivery of payment, um, and residents have to get regular reports of their individual and practice productivity, financial performance, and clinical quality. Um, and they need to have training to analyze those reports. At a minimum, they have to do one quality project for scholarly activity. So how is this done? Well, it's gonna be variable. Each program is gonna individually determine how they can meet the, these standards using the different resources that they have. So some programs are gonna be deep into this, other programs are gonna have less resources and maybe not as much. So the experience of the resident coming out can be really quite variable. So what are some of the challenges that I see as a residency program director uh, that when speaking with learners that we do this? Because we, we have really been trying to enhance our practice with value-based care. You know, some of the things I hear, I only need to address quality gaps at the well visit. This patient added into my schedule for uh, URI, I'm not going to worry about any of the quality goals. My specialists I refer to, they're going to get the MRI or CT. They won't see anyone without it. Everybody in their practice gets it. I'm just going to go ahead and order it. Yeah, they may not need it, but you know what? It'll just save time. Or, you know, hey, this patient's going to be going to the emergency department. They just called and they've got severe headache. I usually can't do a lot about that in my own office. Let's just, we don't need to work them in. Let's just have them go straight to the emergency room. That'll be better care. We've got a blood pressure. Hey, Dr. Fisher, this blood pressure is almost controlled. It's 142 over 94. I don't want to do anything else about that. Let's, let's just let that go and just report that in as that. We're pretty much there. And my favorite, hey, Dr. Fisher, the metric data is wrong. Why do we have to look at this? It's incorrect. I can find an error right here. I don't need to look at this. This is all garbage. Well, so what are some of the things that I've learned as, a, as we've kind of gone on this journey? Um, you have to address quality care gaps at every visit. Um, every time that patient needs contact, every time that you can get a hold of them, that's a great time to bring this up. Um, use your staff for this, standing orders. We have standing orders so that the staff are able to tee up things like mammograms, even if it's outside of that, just to remind patients, hey, we need to get this. Hey, did you have your cervical cancer screening? Many times we find out, oh yeah, I had that. Okay, well, we just have to contact who you had it from so we can get that scanned into the chart. You're not going to find gaps if you don't run a gaps in care report. So somehow getting that information to the person who's doing the visit, whether that's in a paper report, whether your EMR has that pop up, you've got to be notified of those gaps or else you'll never be able to address them. Um, you know, specialist ordering imaging, we've come across this where it seems that the specialists are going to want this regardless. What we try and do is get comfortable with our exam, know that we're doing a good physical exam. And if we don't need the advanced imaging, we're not going to order and explain to the patient why. 
knowing the indications of when to refer and order can be really helpful here. I know the patient's going to the ED. Well, you know, we try and build in same day spots to give patients options. Telemedicine's been great here for visits that don't necessarily need a face-to-face -face exam. Um, blood pressure almost controlled. Well, in, in this case, this is one of those where the goal is one, if it's 140 over 90, it's treated exactly the same as if it's 160 over 100 as far as some of the quality mar markers go. So knowing that, we utilize home blood pressure monitors. Those patients can check that blood pressure at home. If it's an automated cuff, they can record it. Our payers will allow us to do that. So we get to see this more in a natural setting. We just have to make the, um, uh, make the effort and check it to reach out. The metric data is wrong. Therefore, I could disregard it. Expect errors. You're going to have to review the data yourself. You're going to find errors. Working to correct those errors, if there's something systemic, that there's a feed that's not going through, that's how you find out about it, and that's how you change that. Hi, and thank you for joining me. My name is Dr. Anastasia Benson, and I'm a direct primary care family physician in Dallas, Texas. Today, I'm going to talk to you about direct primary care and how it works into the value-based care world. When I was first asked to do this talk, it made me really take a step back and think because value-based care is a CMS term. Um, it's not a term that we would normally use in my model, but um, I think we definitely are able to show our value. And so I wanted to work through um, what research we do have where our model in direct primary care does provide a lot of value to the system, to the patients, to employers, and to physicians. Um, as we've been discussing, um, one of the key elements of value-based care is a quadruple aim, better outcomes, lower cost, improved clinician experience, and improved patient experience. So I'm going to touch through each of these four things and how they apply to direct primary care. Some of you may not know what direct primary care is. It's a pretty new term. Um, it only originated in 2012 during the Affordable Care Act. Um, Previously, many doctors that did direct primary care called themselves concierge physicians. They are two different things though, technically. To be defined as direct primary care, you meet three general components. You charge a periodic fee. It does not mean what period that fee will be, whether it's monthly, weekly, annually, or what the price will be, but you charge a periodic fee. The average DPC in 2017, when they were last surveyed, um, charged 77 per member per month. Um, you also will not bill any third parties on a fee-for-service basis, and any per-visit charge must be less than the monthly equivalent of the periodic fee. This definition of DPC does not exclude any hybrid practices, meaning practices that are a traditional insurance-based practice on one side and DPC on the other for other patients. It also does not prohibit ancillary fees. And it does not mean that any other non-PC DPC relationship is illegal. Um, this definition just provides um, protection from insurance commissioners in different states and on a federal level. So this is based on a study that was released in February 2020 from Adeline and Ronaldson. Um, they used a meta-analysis from different studies that were out there, plus surveying direct primary care practices that were open. At this time, there's thought to be about 1,000 practices across the United States. You can see that the total patients per doctor in a DPC clinic compared to a traditional is markedly less at less than a thousand compared to two to three thousand patients. You can also see looking at your average wait time, number of visits per day, virtual visits, and then the cost of these associated things varies greatly between the two models. So let's start with our quadruple aim. The first one I want to talk about is an improved clinician experience. So this is a study that came out from the Society of Actuaries 
in 2020, um, where they did survey over 200 physicians that had uh, become direct primary care physicians in the past five years on average. Um, and it's interesting looking at their numbers. So how did DPC affect their experience in healthcare? Well, overall, 99% of them felt that they had an improved satisfaction in their personal and professional lives. 98% felt they could practice medicine. 98% felt that the quality of primary care had improved. 97% felt the relationship with their patients improved. 88% felt they had reduced the amount of time spent on paperwork. 73% felt that they reduced the amount of time spent at the office. And 34% responded that they were having a better or much better earnings as a PCP under a DPC model of care. So why does that matter? Well, as many of us know, burnout is a real thing. Um, Medscape does a physician burnout survey every year. Here's the 2020 results. As you can see, every specialty is affected. Family medicine is towards the top at 46% of respondents reporting some level of burnout. Um, it does affect men and women, women more than men per the survey, and it affects physicians across all generations. What is contributing most to our burnout? So let's look at those top four things. Too many bureaucratic tasks, spending too many hours at work, a lack of respect from administrators, employers, colleagues, or staff, and the increased computerization of the practice. And then if we break that down per generation, really the cause of the burnout is pretty much the same between all generations. Um, so DPC can really help with this because you are decreasing those bureaucratic tasks. You are able to change how you're spending your time at work, which is why we saw those respondents say they're spending less time at work. And most practices are micro practices. So um, many of our colleagues in DPC are practicing by themselves or with the micro practice of one, maybe a second physician and that's it. And then of course our administrators are gone. How does direct primary care affect the patient experience? Well, the Society of Actuaries also did a study on this, looking at survey results from about 1500 patients. And patients felt they were able to schedule visits with their doctor within one day. They spent an average of four minutes waiting at the office before their appointment began. And then 38 minutes with the physician per visit on average. Most, 58%, could access their physician through a patient portal and see the AHR. This is a really important piece because while DPC docs often will use EHRs, some of the products that they use don't even have patient portal access. So that's gonna affect that number. 98% um, of respondents did indicate that they expected the DPC model to not only improve their overall satisfaction with primary care, but allow them to work better with their PCP to navigate the healthcare system, to lower their out-of-pocket costs for healthcare, and increase patient compliance with preventative care guidelines. That's fabulous if you look at those numbers. Cost. That's our third part of our quadruple aim. So we know healthcare costs have been increasing. What can we do to help participate in lowering the costs? Well, this is a 10-year projection of what a family of four will spend on healthcare, or health insurance rather, um, over a 10-year period starting in 2017. Um, this is a predicted rate based on the rise from 2015 to 2017. This family of four has a $10,000 deductible. So as you can see in the line in the red, if they carried that golden rule United Healthcare plan every year for 10 years, the family would invest $258,000. 
if they flip to a non-Affordable Care Act compliant plan, but a high deductible plan, and added a DPC clinic, over those 10 years, they'd only spend $37,000. And now we have insurance coverage plus access to a physician. So you can see there's market savings here for the patient. Um, we do have some studies that are starting. DPC is new, so you're not gonna see a lot of these. Um, but in this white paper, again, we're looking at surveys of physicians and looking at employer groups that have been utilizing direct primary care. You can see quite a bit of savings there. Um, the primary care cost, they saw about a $446 savings per year. Imaging was about $300 per year. Generic prescriptions, about $200 per year savings, 134 in labs, and they saved another $128 a year um, in virtual care, which this was even done pre-pandemic. So we know now that potentially that virtual care cost um, has gone up even more than that. Um, so as a whole, each individual in the survey was saving about $1,100 to $1,200 a year just by using a direct primary care physician. That's a lot out of pocket, especially when surveys have shown that about 71% of Americans don't even have $1,000 in their savings account. It's not just saving individuals money, it's also saving employer groups money. This is self-reported data from 2016. Union County in North Carolina decided that they were going to add a DPC option to their health insurance that they offer their um, county employees. Of the 2,000 lives that were employed by the county, 40% of them signed up to do DPC plus a high deductible plan and 60% with the traditional high deductible plan. As you can see in this, and I won't read through this, but the DPC participants had a $1.4 million savings compared to the high deductible plan in just one year. Um, that was in their medical expenses, another 270,000 in prescriptions, another 300,000 um, that they saved personally in their out-of-pocket costs for prescriptions. And then my favorite is that last bullet, 73% of the DPC participants report a significant improvement in their overall health since electing the DPC option. So this is self-reported data from one county, but this is some of our first data that we pulled that really shows potential savings downstream. Q-Lions is a large direct primary care group um, in the Washington area. They've unfortunately closed down, but their data is instrumental in looking at what a larger group can do. Um, Q-Lions actually had a Medicaid pilot, which is where these da this data came from. Q-Lions as a whole took care of about 40,000 patients. And so if you look at their Medicaid data of 1,000 Q-Lions patients um, compared to 1,000 non-Q-Lions patients, they actually saved $679,000 per 1,000 patients. And again, they took care of 40,000 plus people in their system. That is $27.16 million in savings per year if extrapolated out. Those savings came in decreased imaging use, decreased ER visits, decreased specialist visits, decreased, decreased days that they were admitted to the hospital. Um, and then they did have an increase in primary care visits. However, DPC has a set fee. So even though you're seeing the physician more, it's not costing you anymore. Um, the Milliman Group with the Society of Actuaries did a study this year looking at direct primary care versus traditional healthcare options at employers. 
Um, this is a very fascinating study. If anybody has any desire to read it or learn more about the potential downstream cost savings of direct primary care. Um, three big things were pulled out from their 2,500 employee participants. We were able to see um, statistically significant reductions in three different areas of healthcare. Number one, outpatient ER. So they had a 53.6% reduction in cost, and this is risk-adjusted cost too. That's substantial going from someone participating in DPC to traditional fee-for-service. They also saw a 22.2% reduction in cost in outpatient services such as labs, pathology, and imaging, and then a 35.6% reduction in cost compared to the traditional group um, in preventative services with their physician. So as a whole, those are some of your biggest um, expenses for a, an employer. And those are pretty market savings. Um, this is data that goes from January 2016 to December 2017 for, again, about 2,500 employees split about half between a DPC group and a traditional fee-for-service group. Finally, better outcomes. Direct primary care is still pretty new, and most practices are small, so there is limited data on true outcome data. Um, if we're seeing it while we have patients reporting, they feel they're having better health. We're not seeing necessarily that data showing it. So we have some of the very beginning of it. Um, this is actually using MDPIP, which is actually a concierge um, model, not a direct primary care model. But the thought is you could extrapolate the same kind of data. Um, MDVIP is a national franchise that you can be a part of, um, which is why it's also looking at a much bigger group for our N. Um, you can see there the purple on the left is MDVIP um, patients versus the blue are Medicare patients that are non-MDVIP. So that's our comparison. And it's Medicare MDVIP, I should say. All of these are Medicare patients. You can see the quite a substantial um, decrease in uh, discharges from the hospital and on the right is commercial discharges. Um, so we're seeing less people needing to actually use the hospital that are participating in these types of um, care models. And then also readmission. Again, our three biggest causes of readmission, acute MI, CHF, and pneumonia, 97%, 95%, 91% respectively in all three of those areas. So we could um, extrapolate that potentially we are seeing better outcomes with patients who participate in this model of care. So as for now, we can definitely say it's improving your physician experience. It's improving our patient experience and it is lowering costs. And as more and more DPC practices open, we'll have more and more data to show that better outcomes. So that is the value that we provide to the system. Thank you for listening to the ACOFPBO.FM Practice Management Edition Podcast. The ACOFPDO.FM Practice Management Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about the ACOFP, please visit www.acofp.org. Interested in learning more about practice management resources from ACOFP? Visit the Resources tab at www.acofp.org where you'll find a practice management page with a number of helpful articles and links.